Good morning. I uh, did a little prepping of you last week for uh, some of the challenges, so I was encouraged to read that some of you were uh, looking ahead at this passage uh, during the week. I hope you brought some questions so I can talk to you afterwards. Although as I look around, I wonder if there's less people here because I said it was going to be a challenging passage. I sure hope not. Although I do have to say, with this passage, though, the reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So that's Martin Luther. So if you leave today feeling the same, you're in good company. No, I trust by God's grace that you will agree with a portion where he says it is a wonderful text. And by God's grace, you will also leave with more clarity than Martin Luther felt. Peter's letter to the, to the ostracized and maligned saints of Asia Minor has shifted focus in the section we're in. He's kind of transitioning from the excellent conduct of the suffering saints to how those saints were to go through suffering. We looked last week in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17, that they were to indeed suffer for the sake of righteousness, for doing good. And Peter, although he'll return to this, gives them a, a brief warning to make sure you're not suffering for doing bad. They were also to look forward as they went through suffering with confidence to God's blessing. They were to refuse to fear in the midst of their suffering. I know that as we face suffering for our proclaiming of Jesus Christ, for our doing good, that's something that we also face. Maybe some of you have been facing increased fear as you listen to the media. They were also to hollow Jesus Christ as Lord. They were to treat Jesus as he is, as holy as he is. They were to sanctify him as Lord. They were to do this by hoping in him and submitting to him and keeping a good conscience before him and waiting for vindication from him. Peter builds upon these instructions how to suffer next in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. In 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22, these saints who are suffering for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ are going to find comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ, both in his suffering and in his in his exaltation. And so we, as those sojourning saints today in the 21st century, are going to find comfort as well. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 13, and we'll read up to verse 22. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ is Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for preserving your word, and we do thank you uh, for even the, these hard uh, texts, Lord, these portions of your word that can be confusing, that, that, that push us uh, to humbly ask and push us to dependency. And yet, Father, even though portions of this are difficult, talking about spirits in prison and baptism that saves, uh, Lord, we uh, look at other portions that are incredibly clear and our hearts rejoice 
Even as we read in verse 18 how Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Father, we rejoice in what is clear in your word, and we do ask for for wisdom, and we ask for clarity. We pray, Father, that you would uh, help us to know how to apply your word well. We know that your word was written to these uh, uh, saints in modern-day Turkey suffering long ago, and you were encouraging them through your apostle Peter. Father, help us to be faithful, to be faithful to hollow Christ as Lord as well, to be faithful as we go through suffering, and to also find comfort in these verses. Lord, please give us ears that are, are ready to hear. We pray, Father, as the gospel goes forward, that if there are any here who don't know you this morning, that, they'd, that they would repent and put their faith in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Peter 3, 18-22, you'll find reason to be comforted while suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see reason to be comforted while suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at four reasons this morning and focus on verses 18 and 19, getting into 20-some, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll, we'll see more reasons in verses 20 to 22. So we're going to look at four reasons this morning to find comfort while you face suffering. Often we think of missionaries who are suffering. We think of suffering in other countries, suffering in communist countries or Muslim countries. But we also know that not all suffering for Jesus Christ occurs in a foreign country. You might suffer for even your most gentle proclaiming of the gospel, your most gentle sharing of the good news to those you love, whether family or classmates or co-workers. You might suffer for, and, and imagine this, you're, you're driving along with, with friends maybe from school, and you might suffer for your unwillingness to, to, to play a certain song on the radio, not willing for those lyrics to be played. You might suffer for continuing to love family members that others in your family have rejected, and you alone are committed to loving them and serving them. You might suffer for your submission to God's commands regarding gender, regarding the home, regarding your conduct at work, regarding honoring your parents. You might suffer as others malign you as they mock your good conduct in Christ Jesus. And when you suffer for Jesus Christ, you will need to be comforted. And Peter supplies more than enough comfort. He supplies that comfort by looking at Christ in his suffering, but also in his exaltation. So let's look at this first reason to be comforted. Be comforted by the suffering of God's beloved Son. And we're going to see that in the beginning of verse 18. Be comforted by the suffering of God's beloved Son. Verse 18 begins with the word for, or, 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 or because, or, or since. It reinforces the idea at the end of verse 17, for it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong because or, or since. He's expanding upon it. And he expands upon it by pointing to Jesus Christ. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Peter provides proof that God indeed does will for the righteous to suffer for doing good. And Jesus is the proof of that. Suffering when doing good doesn't indicate that you are outside of God's will. As Jesus was not outside of his Father's will. Now if you have your New American Standard Bible this morning, you see that it says, For Christ also died. The English Standard Version says, For Christ also suffered. And there's manuscript evidence for both of those words, died and suffered. There's two Greek words behind, behind in, in, in various manuscripts. And good cases could be made for, for both. And both here, we do refer to Jesus' death. But I would lean towards what the ESV says, uh, the word that it chooses among the manuscripts, suffer. And there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, he's talking about suffering, and Peter mentions that uses this same word suffering 11 times. And so it makes good sense for him to use this word suffering when he doesn't use this word died elsewhere. 
It's also a little bit more likely to think of, of copyists as they're carefully copying the manuscript, going along and either making an intentional change or an unintentional mistake, switching it from suffering to dying for our sins. Because we often hear and read in Scripture of Jesus dying for our sins. It's less common to hear of Jesus suffering for our sins. And so when, you, when you're comparing two different groups of manuscripts, the general rule is you take what is the harder. And it's more difficult to imagine them switching die to suffer than it is them switching suffering to die. So it makes good sense in this section here to do what the ESV does and keep it. But even if, oh, I'm sorry, in, in, in verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins. Christ also suffered. The fact that Christ suffered for doing good should give us serious pause when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness or to doubt his faithfulness when we suffer. Peter's already said in 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose, called to suffer, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. We are to follow Christ's example in suffering for doing good. As we'll see in these upcoming verses, it was through suffering that Christ was glorified. So we must not be surprised if our own glorification, our becoming like Jesus Christ, this process which has become begun now for those who have faith in him, and will continue ultimately until we are glorified to be, Jesus, to be like Jesus Christ, if it goes through a similar path that Jesus went through. As the commentary Thomas Schreiner says, suffering is the pathway to glory. And that was true of Jesus Christ, that God brought his own son through suffering to glory. And so we should not be surprised if our suffering goes along with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So be comforted when you suffer for Jesus Christ. You are following along with your master. You are becoming like him. So don't doubt God's goodness to you. Don't think you must be doing something wrong. Rejoice that you are like Jesus Christ. So we need to be comforted by the suffering of God's beloved son. We also be comforted by God's purpose being accomplished in his son's suffering. We should be comforted that God accomplished his purpose in his son's suffering. We'll see that in a second, in the middle part of verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Christ's suffering wasn't meaningless. It wasn't empty. It wasn't a mistake in God's plan. And it wasn't only an example that we should follow in. The sacrifice of Christ was a substitutionary sacrifice. For Christ also died for sins. Not for his own sins. I know that we know, we know that, but we'll see that. He did not suffer for doing what is wrong. Instead, it's for sins. And that construction in the Greek is found many times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament language of sacrifice, of an animal dying in the place of a human. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Apostle Paul tells why Christ died. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Galatians 1, verse 4, Who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. It's according to the Father's will that Christ should give himself for our sins. The sacrifice of Christ was a, a substitutionary sacrifice. It was also an effective sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that was given for sins, but it was a sacrifice that was once for all, we see in verse 18. The ESV simply says once, and both have the same idea. As long as you don't think when you read once for all, it means once, comma, for all people. That's not his point here. He just means once. It, it, was, it, it was the ending sacrifice. There's no more sacrifices needed afterwards. 
Our suffering isn't sacrificial, either for ourselves or for others. Now, we can speak of language of sacrificing for someone else, but it doesn't make them right with God. It's not a, 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 a substitutionary sacrifice. The one sacrifice God required has forever been provided in Jesus Christ. So whatever we suffer is in sanctification, not in substitution. It is in obedience and not in our absolving ourselves. The sacrifice of Christ, it was, it, was, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was an effective sacrifice. It was also an undeserved sacrifice. His death, his suffering was undeserved. It says, the just for the unjust. Now, translating this word just, it is a fine way to translate it. It just obscures something. We just saw this word in verse 12. It was translated as righteous. It is the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. Verse 12 is encouraging. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attends to their prayers. And Peter, by quoting from Psalm 34 there, was encouraging the saints. The Lord is, is attentive to the righteous. He will bless you. But we also know that we have a problem when we read Scripture. In, first, in Romans 3.10, says that there's none righteous, no, not one. No, not one except Jesus Christ. Jesus was righteous. First Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I love that, 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 that Scripture embraces calling Jesus Christ righteous. Now, it could be said of someone, uh, a New Testament saint, who, who, who obeyed the Old Testament law, that, 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 that they were righteous, that they were just. It doesn't mean that, that they were perfect, but it speaks about Jesus Christ with such authority in his righteousness. It says, uh, oh, and, and Isaiah 53 prophesies the Messiah, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. In Acts 3, Peter speaks of Jesus, but you disown the holy and righteous one. In, let me find the reference here. In a 1 John 2, the, the apostle John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus was righteous. He was sinless. He had no, no draw towards sin. It had no temptation in itself for him. He never looked at sin and said, oh, it's so beautiful. I want that. I crave that. He was righteous. Apart from God's transforming grace, there are none who are righteous like Jesus Christ. Romans 3.10 describes as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And I know that you here this morning know that, that there's none righteous, not even one, that we have all broken God's laws, that we are internally broken apart from Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 describes how we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The psalmist in Psalm 51 describes that that was our, our nature by birth, that in sin my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean that we were illegitimately born, but that in, in, in nature I was brought forth in iniquity, that we have no internal righteousness, that we are unrighteous. Now, by God's grace in his common grace, we might... We might admire some righteous things. But apart from God's spirit changing us, we don't love his law. We don't crave to be conformed to it. We, we, we don't want to, to obey all of it because it's so beautiful. That only happens through Jesus Christ transforming us. Peter continues. He says of Jesus Christ, That Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus, the righteous one, gave his life 
for us who are unrighteous. And we can't get bored saying that. He's the righteous for the unrighteous. This is not fairness. This is not what we deserve. We didn't deserve for him to give his life in our place. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 describes this. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Then of 6, the Lord has caused iniquity of us all to fall on him. The righteous for the unrighteous. Romans 5, verse 19, it says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, through Adam's sin all humans were made sinners, all of us became unrighteous. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The unrighteous for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous one gave his life for the unrighteous. And the sacrifice of, of Christ, the suffering that he went through, was not meaningless. It was intentional. It was purposeful. And it accomplished God's purpose. And we see what that purpose is in verse 18. So that he might bring us to God. Christ gave his life to bring us into his throne room. Not as enemies, but as the reconciled. Not as addicts, but as the satiated. Not as rebels, but as the submissive. Not as adulterers, but as the faithful. Not as idolaters, but as those whose eyes are transfixed upon him. That is how he brings us into his presence. If God has brought you into his presence, there is no one who can evict you from his presence. There's no landlord who's going to come knocking on the door, asking for next month's rent. The price of your eternal welcome has been paid by Jesus Christ. He has brought you into God's throne room where you are welcome as Jesus Christ is. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be in God's throne room. It is to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. God's throne room is the throne room of grace. The throne room in which those who have been justified by faith stand. And we exalt it in hope of the glory of God. Do you this morning have peace with God? Do you stand in grace? Are you confident that you are welcomed in your presence, that Christ has brought you to God? Have you transitioned from death to life, from unrighteousness to righteousness? This is what the gospel is. This is what the good news is, that you can be justified by faith, welcomed into his presence for eternity, being brought to God. It is only through believing in him it's through Christ alone that we have access in one spirit to the Father, Paul says in Ephesians 2.18. This is the great hope that we have. 1 Peter 3.18. This is evangelism classes are great. I look forward to, to offering one at some point in our equipping hour. I know I need that refreshment. You need it. But honestly, if you can explain 1 Peter 3.18... You can give an answer for the hope that you have. 1 Peter 3.18 is all the answer that you need. That Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is the reason for the hope that we have. See, God has a grand purpose in his son's suffering. God's design was for your devotion. His purpose was for your praise. His eternal plan was for your unending pleasure at his right hand so that he might forever be glorified. And our, our father accomplished this, this plan through his beloved son's suffering. He had, he's accomplished his purpose through his son's suffering and he will accomplish his purpose through your suffering as well. The good God who brings us into his presence, 
who brings us to God. We'll watch every step until we are finally and forever and fully home with Him. His son was forsaken. And you could almost say only for three hours on the cross, but that was, that, that was, that was the darkest three hours that humanity would ever see. That, that either God or man would ever know. If you are in Jesus Christ, he will never forsake you as you go through suffering for him. He has brought you to God. And, 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 and Peter's encouraging the saints here with this gospel, with this hope, with this good news. Jesus did suffer for sins, but look what that suffering has accomplished. And he will accomplish his purposes through your suffering as well, so you can be comforted. You can be comforted that God's own beloved son suffered. And you can be comforted that God accomplishes purpose in his son's suffering. You can also be comforted by Christ's glorification. You can be comforted by Christ's glorification. We see that at the end of verse 18. This is some of where this passage gets challenging. It says, having put to death in the flesh, and, but made alive in the spirit, at the end of verse 18. Peter, Peter forms an intentional contrast here between two grammatically parallel statements. And these are intentionally balanced, well-worded, carefully chosen statements. He could have said, having been put to death, but made alive. And that would have been great, having been put to death, but made alive. But instead, Peter goes beyond that. He, instead, he says, the end of verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Others have been brought, to, have been brought back to life, only to die again, but not Jesus. His resurrection was different from those who've been resurrected before him. Peter's use of flesh and spirit at the end of verse 18 suggests that Peter's contrasting between two kinds of existence. One which is temporal, an existence which is temporal, which is changing, which is mortal, the flesh. And another which is eternal and unchanging and immortal in spirit. Now, as Peter does this, he's not contrasting material with the with the im with the immaterial. Excuse me. He's not just uh, instead he's contrasting old with new. So it's not just kind of a body versus soul soul distinction here. That's not the contrast he's making. It's more about old and new. We know from God's word that Jesus, being made alive in spirit. Is not, is not only spirit. He wasn't a ghost. In fact, Jesus corrects his disciples about this in Luke 24, verses 36 to 40. It talks about while, while, while they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in the disciples' midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And that word spirit is the same word here. It doesn't say that Jesus was made alive in the spirit. Well, that's what they thought. We're, we're, we're seeing a spirit. We're seeing a ghost. But Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus was proving to them, I'm not spirit only. I, 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 have, I have flesh and, and blood and bones. I, I'm different but you can still touch me. Now, spirit is the same word here in Greek. So what is it referring to when it says that he's made alive in spirit? See, Jesus was different, though. Jesus is the new Adam of a new humanity that will follow. Those who are in Christ will one day join Christ in glorification after they, too, die in the flesh and are made alive in the spirit. So Jesus is the pattern, being put to death in the flesh, and made alive in the spirit. Those who are in Christ will one day be put to death in the flesh and made alive in spirit. 
Peter's talking here that, 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 that when Jesus was resurrected, it was in a whole new way of living, a whole new experience. And I know that, that some of this is, is, is vague, and honestly, Scripture doesn't explain it fully. We're going to read from Paul how Paul talks about how our resurrection bodies are different from our first bodies. And Paul's going to use the, the same contrast be, be, between, between flesh and spirit. And he uses this word spirit to describe our new bodies too, our glorified bodies. In fact, we're, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll see some of, uh, uh, some of Paul making a, a similar contrast starting in verse 42. Now, now, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is uh, writing to, to correct the idea that there is a true resurrection of the dead. And it seems that those in Corinth thought that the body is bad and spirit's good. We would never become bodies again. And Jesus is proving, well, if that's true, then Jesus, I mean, Paul's proving that if Jesus if that's true, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Jesus has a body. But he's going to talk, in verse 42 and on, that, that, that there is a difference. And I believe that Peter, having seen Jesus, is talking about the same difference. When Peter says he's made alive in the flesh, he doesn't stop there. He was, but may, uh, I mean, he, was, uh, he, he was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit. And that's what Peter's going to describe here in verse 42. That's what Paul's going to describe in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 42. You know, after... Uh, preaching about Peter and Paul. We spent so many time in so many of Paul's epistles, and now I'm preaching in Peter. I feel better in, in care group the other night, although it shows you how good of a care group leader I am, when I look at Paul to his face, and I called him Peter. And I'm going to blame uh, uh, these guys here, Peter and Paul, in Scripture. So, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 53. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He's saying that there is something different in our resurrected bodies. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's very clear this does not mean that Jesus didn't have a physical body. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. Everyone born of Adam continues along with Adam and is a human like Adam. But... As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Jesus Christ has this heavenly body, this, this spiritual body, and so those who are heavenly who are going to be resurrected are going to have a body like him. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly Adam, we also bear the image of the heavenly Christ. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We're going to have to be changed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on, Im, uh, on immortality. Because Jesus, and end and, and, and quote from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 53, because Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, our perishable bodies will put on imperishable, and our mortal bodies will put on, in, uh, on immortality. What Peter is describing here is that when Jesus was brought back to life, when he was made alive, it was in a, a, a new kind of existence. It's still human, but it's the new human. He is the first of a new humanity who's going to be made like him. It is imperishable. It is immortal. It is not going to be dishonored. It describes, Paul just talks about it, of having power. And I don't understand the full extent of what that means. Paul's point there is we're going to have to be changed and we're going to get new bodies. We're going to be truly human for eternity. It is going to be different. Now, we know that this happens when Christ returns for those who are his, that we are transformed at the twinkling of an eye, that we, that we who are alive at Christ's coming get our new bodies instantly. And those who have died in Christ will be resurrected with these new bodies, these new made alive in spirit bodies. 
So why does Peter use this short phrase? He could have said, put to death and, and made alive. With this short phrase, Peter points to a whole new creation order. Whatever the suffering, sojourning saints of Asia Minor were going through, it was only temporary. Their suffering was temporary. Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees a whole new creation order, a whole new eternity. Their resurrection is coming with Christ's resurrection. Because Christ is transformed, they will be transformed. The age of flesh is coming to a, lo- to a close, and the age of spirit has been inaugurated. The new is around the corner. So hold on. Don't give up, saints, as you face suffering for your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You, too, will be made alive in the Spirit. The future is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's the... the, Now, does Peter spend a lot of time on that? No, but he could have left that off. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it there? He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. He doesn't spend a lot of time explaining it. We can assume that that this is something that they had already been taught, probably something that we need to grow in. Understanding that our eternal bodies are not going to be like these bodies, and we know that we're not going to die. We know that they're not going to experience pain. There'll be no more sorrows, but, but, but that it's going to be supernaturally different. That's as much as I can explain right now at least until we get through the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if that will be appropriate for Resurrection Sunday, though. So so we should be comforted. We should be comforted that when Christ was glorified, it guarantees that we, too, will be glorified. We can be comforted that if God allowed his beloved son to suffer, that, 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 that it's okay when he allows us to suffer, that that is our pathway to glorification. That if God accomplished his purpose for his son, he will accomplish his purpose in our suffering as well. And last, we can see, we can be comforted by Christ's, proc- his, Christ's proclamation. We see that in verses 19 and 20. Be comforted by Christ's proclamation. Now, perhaps part of Peter's purpose in referring to Christ as being made alive in the Spirit, is that Christ, in his new existence, is able to go where the, where, where the flesh of this creation can't. Okay? I'm going to talk about that again. Peter wants to bring his audience to some place where Christ went that we in our flesh can't, but Jesus in his Spirit, in his new existence, could. So starting in, in verse 19. And which also, in, in, in spirit, in this new existence, which all new humans will, will, will one day participate in, in which also he went and made, made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. I'm very thankful for our incoming junior hires who just joined us. They may be wondering, what is going on? Okay. As we read this, so, so the beginning of verse 19, in which, in this new spiritual existence, in this new body that Christ has, he, he goes somewhere. It says, he went also and made proclamation to the spirits, in verse 19. So who are these spirits that he's making proclamation to? The best understanding of, of these spirits, and, and there are multiple interpretations out there, the most accepted now, and I think the best for several reasons, is that these spirits are referring to fallen angels. Okay? These spirits are referring to, to, to fallen angels. And when the word spirit is used in this plural as spirits in, in the New Testament, it most often refers to angels. Even more, the word spirit in the plural, is only used once in Scripture to refer to humans. So Jesus, in the Spirit, in this new body, is not going to humans in prison. He is going to, 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 to spirits in prison. 
and because to angels in prison. Because it's in prison and who are disobedient, we know that these are fallen angels. So where is this prison? Where is this now in prison that Jesus is going to? It's the normal word used often in scripture for prison. It is the same one used in Revelation 20, verse 7, talking about Jesus's millennial reign on earth. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. When Jesus comes to reign on earth, Satan is put into a prison. And we don't know if it's the same prison as these, as these fallen angels are, these spirits. But Satan also will be in prison. I think it's, it's, it's safe to assume that this is the same, the, same, the same kind of prison. Well, this imprisonment of angels is taught in both 2 Peter and Jude. We'll see in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for, for judgment. So Peter in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, talks about these angels that sinned, how they were committed to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude talks about these, these angels too. And angels who did not keep their, 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 their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So in 2 Peter and Jude and in 1 Peter, all talks about these, these fallen angels, these demons in, in prison. Now we can see from scripture that not all demons are in prison, that these are certain demons in prison. So let's get back to verse 19. In which also Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, and then it describes them in the beginning of verse 20, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So how were these, 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 these demons who've been imprisoned, how were they disobedient during the days of Noah? And our text doesn't specify what kind of disobedience they did. So how they were disobedient, First Peter doesn't say. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, though, gives a, a parallel passage that explains what these fallen demons were doing. It gets pretty wild. I think it's good to remember when we examine Scripture that uh, Scripture doesn't apologize for the supernatural. Right? We all believe that, that God became a man. We all believe that God performed miracles. So we shouldn't be surprised. No, we, we can be surprised. We can be surprised by what we read in Genesis 6, 1-4, but we can't think it's impossible. We believe in the supernatural. So if, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 6, verses 1-4. through 4. Some crazy stuff here. Now it came about... When men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now, the best understanding of this phrase, the sons of God, and there are, are, are multiple understandings of this, I believe that the best understanding is that these are referring to angels, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So we talk about angels taking human wives. You might say, well, that's impossible, right? Angels don't have bodies. Well, we do know that angels take bodies. Uh, if you remember when, when, when the uh, three men came to Abraham to tell about the birth of Isaac, it was the pre-incarnate Lord and two angels as men who then go on to, 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 to Sodom afterwards. When those men went to Sodom and Gomorrah, the, debra the depraved people of Sodom wanted to have sex with those men. Those were angels. We also see that those angels ate with Abraham. Now, this is, I know, very stretching to think about. Angels take on human bodies to the point that they can eat. Well, they can also take on human bodies to the point that they can marry, and I think the text shows have children. Then the Lord said, okay, so, and if you've never read this before, it's a little wild, right? 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And it doesn't mean that they just went and, 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 and like stole wives. This took wives for themselves is just the normal word for they married. Okay, so Genesis 6, I think we're getting to verse 3 here. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive, strive with, man, with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. I believe that this is talking about God saying, I'm done with humans living to five, six, seven hundred years old in their wickedness. These are the kinds of wicked things that they are doing. This is the epitome of that wickedness. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and Nephilim means, means fallen ones, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Somehow, in God's providence, these, these fallen angels became human enough to the point that they could procreate with humans and have human children. Uh, Just a real quick caveat there. I was going to stop my timer, but I can't do that because I'm still going. But uh, uh, it's, it's, be careful as I read this, explaining why Jesus was sinless because he was born of a woman but not Adam's seed. These would be examples of people who were born not of Adam's seed who were still sinful. So just kind of a crazy thought there. Okay, so... My best, my, 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 best, my best understanding of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and I would say that, that, that this is the, the consensus among, among evangelical scholars, is that these sons of God refer to demonic angels who had inhabited human flesh and married human women. Now, Genesis doesn't say whether the women knew or not that these were demons become men or taking on the, the men's shapes. I do think, though, that humans knew. And I think that you can imagine why they would do this. Here, here, demons. Now, Scripture's clear that when people worship idols, they are worshiping demons. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, they made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. When, when people worship idols, and, and, and Paul affirms this, they are worshiping demons. So here you have demons become men. In a sense, you had their false gods taking on the shape of human men. So you could imagine, and, 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 and the more you read of the, old, of the Old Testament and how much uh, worship of false gods of Canaan was tied to, 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 to sexual practices and to, and, and, and to cultic prostitution that was going on and participating in, 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 in these fertility rituals, you can imagine, I don't know if you can imagine, I, I guess I can imagine these ancient people finding the allure of mating with a god. And that's, and that's true in, in mythologies from around the world, probably where those mythologies come from. They, 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 and, and whether it was a, a grab for, 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 for power or trying to get the, these, these demons, these gods become men to, 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 to do what they wanted, to control the weather. Maybe it was a, a, an attempt by them to, to, to gain the, the, the immortality that was lost at the fall. Here they're still living to 700, 800 years old, and, and, and they're still trying to escape the effects of the curse. They're trying to, to have children who, who uh, uh, as they have babies, they don't want them to die. And this is what drove the Canaanite fertility practices of Baal worship. And we see that same kind of worship going on here, I think. It is a good possibility, although neither Genesis 6 nor 1 Peter explains what these fallen demons, why did they become men? It was no doubt, though, to corrupt humans, and it was no doubt to, uh, to prevent God's plan of the gospel that had already been promised, of, of, of this descendant of Adam who's going to crush Satan's Head. You can imagine these fallen demons at Satan's being sent, trying to pervert humans into all kinds of wickedness, even having sex with demons. 
So why then would Jesus make proclamation to these spirits now in prison who have been disobedient through, who have been disobedient during the days of Noah? The word proclamation there is the word preach. It is often, most often, almost always used in scripture of gospel preaching. But there's no evidence that Jesus, no, I mean, no evidence in all of Scripture that, 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 that fallen demons ever had a chance to repent. He's not preaching good news for them. The word can also be used in proclamation in general, in heralding, in proclaiming. We see that in Luke 12, verse 3. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. We, we see it in the general sense of being proclaimed there. Revelation 5, verse 2. When I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seal? Jesus goes into this demonic prison, and he heralds, he proclaims. And what proclamation is he making? It's not specified, but I think the point of his presence makes it clear. This is Jesus' victory march over those who would condemn humanity. This is his parade route through the prison of demons. Jesus Christ has won the salvation that these demons would have, would have hoped to have prevent. Jesus saved those that the demons would hope to condemn. So I've meditated upon this, and, 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 and I think Jesus is coming... Uh, to, to show this unique way in which his holiness has contrasted with their wickedness. See, these demons came in human flesh to tempt, but Jesus in human flesh resisted being tempted. Jesus in human flesh did not lead humanity to destruction, but to salvation. These demons in human flesh came, and what happened? The flood. It's possible that there was millions alive on the earth at that point. The judgment poured out like, like we've never seen since except on the cross. So, so here it looked like, the, I mean, it was the darkest moment of all humanity before the cross. Of course, which is the brightest moment for all humanity. The darkest moment for humanity before the cross when, 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 when it looks like these demons have won and, and, and all of creation is going to be wiped out. And so Jesus goes to these demons and say, no, I've won. And it's thrilling. The supernatural activities of Satan failed before the flood. They failed at the birth of Christ. And remember how Herod wanted to kill the newborn baby. That the Satan went into Judas to, so that he would betray Jesus. All of Satan's attempts to stop the salvation of men failed. And so Jesus goes into this demonic prison and proclaims his victory. And so we as suffering saints need to be encouraged by this proclamation of Jesus Christ that he wins. Whatever Satan's ongoing plans now are, they will fail. And Peter knows he's still out and about. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's still out there seeking to destroy you. The demonic plans are still afoot. So suffering saint, don't give in. Jesus has made proclamation to all those demons who brought on the worst judgment that humans have ever faced. Or at least who are part of that. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our suffering isn't ultimately from flesh and blood alone, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's saying we are still in ongoing conflict ultimately with Satan and his horde who still want the same thing for humanity to worship demons, right? That is what is going on in the world's idolatry now. And I know that we have this, this sacralized humanism in America, and we don't know where the idols are, right? But, but Satan is just as pleased with what's going on now. S 
these suffering saints could be encouraged. And suffering saints have been encouraged. And we can find encouragement now. We can find comfort now in the fact that Jesus has overcome. That he, the true son of God, God became man, did something that these sons of God, these, 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 these demons couldn't prevent from happening. It got to the point where there was eight people alive on the earth and God's plan still won. And Jesus, made alive in the spirit, will overcome as well. As you go into this upcoming week, are you eager to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Some of you are graduating from, from, from high school. You have a few opportunities left to proclaim to some of those people the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Some of you are going into junior high and can look forward to that, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As you go into this upcoming week, are you going to have behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the, in the day of visitation? As you do this, as you proclaim him and live good, holy lives, as you are maligned and mocked for what you won't do, you will face suffering. Or you, if the Lord wills, you could face suffering. Are you ready to be comforted? By God's grace, I trust that you find this passage comforting. And maybe it is a bigger fear of what's changing in America. You can be comforted. Be comforted that God allowed his own beloved son to suffer. It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's purpose that he's accomplishing. That his son has been glorified. And his son will glorify us that we will be made alive in the spirit as well. And be comforted by the fact of God's proclamation to these enslaved demons now in hell, that Christ wins. We don't have to be afraid of suffering in this upcoming week. We have to go into the week saying, who can I tell about Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you uh, really for the sweet uh, body that you have brought together here. I thank you, Father, for their appetite for your word. I thank you, Father, for their patience in going through difficult texts, Lord. I thank you, Father, for really their, 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 their generous giving so that I could spend so much of the week studying this, Lord. And I pray, Father, that, 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 that our understanding this with more clarity, we want to do this humbly. There's godly men who, di who are, have different positions in some of these things, uh, Lord, but that our, our, our understanding this as best as we can. Lord, would lead towards the fruit that Peter was going for, that we would not fear what they fear, or that we would have Christ exalted in our hearts, that he would be the one that we fear, the one that we dread, the, the, the one who's been exalted and hollowed in our hearts, Lord. And may we have our hearts so full of Jesus Christ that we would go forth and proclaim him, and, and that we would devote ourselves to doing good, that we would become the mature, ripened fruit that you want us to be. Lord, that, that, that we would bear fruit in our abiding with Christ, that even our, our, our knowing of, of, of what Christ did after his resurrection, as he ascends to heaven, uh, it would fill our hearts with such a sense of your victory, Lord, your son is unstoppable and your kingdom is advancing. And we love that, Lord. So we ask, Father, that, that your, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where Christ reigns perfectly, bring that reign here upon earth. And we look forward to your son reigning here on earth. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us in this upcoming week to glorify him. May you be glorified through our obedience to you by doing good works. And may you be glorified by our proclaiming the excellencies of of, 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 of you who called us out of darkness, out of to, that, 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 Lord, we, we could have been forever enslaved, Lord. We could have been these same people mating with demons. Lord, you saved uh, us, Lord, from, from worshiping the idols of this age, Lord. The, 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 the demonic influence that still exists. Father, I do pray that you would help us uh, to, to be sober-minded. Uh, help us, even as we, we, we get a little of this supernatural world, what we can't see 
uh, kind of unpeeled for us. We see this little window into a mu- this big story, Lord. We pray, Father, and we think about how, how in Ephesians it talks about how, how, how what's going on in the church is for your glory among the angels. Lord, Father, help us to be faithful in this upcoming week, Lord. And please, God, in your grace, give us boldness and, and, and give us love for our neighbors and our families and our coworkers and our classmates. And please, Father, even in this upcoming week, if it pleases you, add to our, our, our numbers that are going to be made alive in the spirit, part of the new humanity who forever glorifies you as, 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 as the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.